how to make BuzzFeed style videos, but should you? And is the ESPN bubble about to burst? This is episode 24 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I am Tom Asacker. Tom, how to make BuzzFeed-style videos, but should you? Or shouldn't everyone be making BuzzFeed-style videos? Uh, well, based on the, <laughs> you know, the growth trajectory of the company, I think so, maybe. Well, that's what of we're going to talk about, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. Here's how you can make BuzzFeed-style video content. That's from TubeFilter. Uh, the article is really actually kind of interesting. They do what I would describe as a forensic breakdown of BuzzFeed uh, videos in order to determine what makes a BuzzFeed video a BuzzFeed video, what makes it viral, what makes it successful, and so on. I like that. And here are the three elements. I'm going to touch on three, these three elements, and then I want to kind of uh, focus on one particular point that they make that I think is fundamental. The three elements that make up most, if not all, BuzzFeed videos. One, they are identity videos, things about you, who, what, where, why, when and how you are. Two, they are informational or utility videos, things about your world. And by that, they especially mean things like listicles, 12 ways, five ways, four ways, nine ways. <laughs> Number three, they are emotional gift videos. They are things that affect how you feel, puppies, kittens, any other juvenile animal you can imagine. <laughs> Those are the three things. And then they go through a bunch of examples of how they, they uh, uh, title starters, title starters. They spend all their time on identity title starters, information title starters, emotional title starters. And what this adds up to is one sentence, which I want to focus on, and then I want to get your take. And this is that sentence. They say, every video BuzzFeed makes is designed to be shared. I would go one step beyond that, Tom, and I would say that not only does every video BuzzFeed make is it designed to be shared, but the only point of a BuzzFeed video is to be shared. The only point. <laughs> Crafting the virus is the only purpose of the video. There is no value without the sharing of the video. That's my take. What do you think? <laughs> well, obviously, it has to be designed to do two things. Click and then share, right? So... <laughs> But it, it's what, no, not necessarily. That's actually not necessarily true. Oh, you can share true. it without looking at it. You just you see the title and you share it without reading it or oh, watching. Oh, that's right. You said that before that somebody yeah. did that with one of your things. You got <laughs> yes. a lot of shares, but nobody read any of it. Twice as many. <laughs> I don't know, Mark. You know, this isn't just about video. It, you know, everybody in in the whole content business. I mean, we're being fed this frenetic diet of. Video, images, news, more images, advertising. In general, people just aren't very good at filtering this stuff. We, we, we don't slow down. We're not selecting the most beneficial mental diet. And, and it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this. This is, this is um, listen, I'm being very serious here. Well, not really serious. I, I'm usually not serious. I'm being sincere. I think that what's happening in media right now is similar to what happened to the processed food industry. Because if you look at the 1900s, corporations grew wildly by adding what they knew people are instinctively attracted to, salt, sugar, mm. and fat. They right. did it to stimulate people's desires in the moment and to create like really powerful purchase and consumption habits. Some people even think that they were creating addictions. Mm -hmm. And just like the media today, 
The processed food industry spent massive amounts of money trying to perfect the magic formula, right? For BuzzFeed, Mm -hmm. according to this article, it's these three things, identity, information, Mm -hmm. and emotional gift. But for the packaged food manufacturers, I don't think people realize what these guys were up to. They tried to perfect the right mouthfeel with fat Mm -hmm. and a bliss, they call it a bliss point, with sugar. (laughs) So whether you bite into this product, it rushes directly into the pleasure centers of your brain and it creates this desire for more and more and more. This is what we're seeing in media. Remember they did that with those potato chips a few years ago that had the right mouthfeel of fat but contained no fat and the only problem was that you ate so many you had to spend a lot of time in the washroom? Oh, no, they tried, no, no, that was, do you remember that was this product uh, additive called Olestra. Olestra and right. on the bag it says, you know, may cause anal leakage. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so that's a problem. You don't, you don't want to put that on the label anywhere. But, but look, the same thing is going on. These guys are investing heavily in advertising and promotion and merchandising. They're trying to get their quote-unquote product seen at eye level in the stores, just like the snack food guys. And so what's BuzzFeed's store? I guess it's going to be the mobile device. And to your point, iLevel is getting people to share the content. And these guys are experts at crafting packages to entice people. That's what, that's what the headlines are. Packaged food, but again, right? Packaged food industry, same thing. Do you think really when they put all natural on a bag of potato chips, do you, do you know why they do that? Yeah. Why do they put contains real fruit juice <laughs> in some of these things? Because they know what drags you in, just like BuzzFeed knows how to write a headline. But there is some substance to those foods. You can walk away from some ice cream and say, wow, that was tasty. I, I mean... Oh, come on, what? Mark, come on. <laughs> People find these cat videos, quote unquote, tasty. <laughs> but Tom... <laughs> If everyone's making cat videos, I mean, it, it, doesn't that crowd out the opportunity for anyone else to make anything else for any other reason? I mean, what's the difference between taking a lesson from BuzzFeed video and wanting to be an actor only to be famous or wanting to write a book only to be a best-selling author? Money, my friend. This is about, this is about money. Look, we're going to see... <laughs> You're going to see, actually, this is going to be interesting because we can't really see it, but we're going to see an obesity epidemic of the mind. We're going to see layers <laughs> of fat caused by watching silly videos and checking email, updating Facebook pages. I mean, forget all the data that we are unknowingly turning over to these people so that they know how to better seduce us, right? Mm-hmm. We send it to them. I mean, some of these companies test what? Thousands of combinations of headlines and images every few minutes to see what's having the greatest effect on us. That's right. So this is, I don't think people realize what's going on here. No, but I think also that ultimately when everyone takes a page from BuzzFeed video and everything ends up looking, feeling, and being like BuzzFeed video, then uh, it's going to crowd out what's left, Tom. (laughs) It already is. It's already crowded out what's left. What, yes. what it's going to do is it's going to, it's going to have a similar effect on BuzzFeed and everyone else as it's having on the packaged goods people. Walk mm-hmm. down the snack food aisle in the supermarket. There are so many that you don't even know which brand to choose anymore. Mm-hmm. So they're going to run into the same problem. If, if people start grabbing this formula and applying it everywhere, 
The next thing you know, BuzzFeed's going to go, oh, man, nobody's watching our cat videos. Well, that's because there's 10,000 <laughs> cat videos now. You know, you're not special anymore. And speaking of anal leakage, <laughs> um, there was another article we looked at in Ad Age that, uh, and I just love the title. Here are the 10 most influential YouTube stars among adults. And then the subtitle under the first photo was YouTube star Jenna Marbles is more influential among adults than Julia Roberts, says a USC that. study. Isn't that great? Yeah. And my first thought was, well, wait a minute. Why, you know, I don't go to Julia Roberts for influence over what to buy. I go to Julia Roberts to see, you know, her play somebody in a movie. I mean, it, it seems to me they're comparing two different things uh, I here. I don't know, Mark. I mean, I think they're saying she's a bigger celebrity. Jenna Marbles just announced that her likeness is going to appear in uh, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in New York. Well, (laughs) we've been talking about that Madame Tussauds thing. She seems to be doing all the YouTube stars. That's her new thing. There's all the YouTube stars. So, yeah, I mean, the, the statistic here was adults in the U.S. consider YouTube stars to be up to five times more influential and believable than traditional celebrities. Believable. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Okay, believable, really, they're talking about the ability to sell stuff. So, yes, believable. But I thought, well, wait a minute. Um, is that actually true or is that an artifact of the, of the reality that uh, Jenna Marbles maybe uh, have millions of followers, but she's certainly less well-known than Julia Roberts. And the more famous you are for the smaller group of fans you have, the more influential and persuasive you're going to be for that group. So statistically, I think what we're looking at is, you know, fewer people know Jenna than, uh, than Julia. So, of course, she's got a more passionate subscriber base. She's going to be more influential for those people, right? Uh, look, I watched exactly two minutes of one of her videos, and I felt my mind starting to ooze out of my ears. Listen, <laughs> here's what's going on. I think what the people are saying is, now maybe I could be wrong. I think what they're saying is, look, traditional celebrities like, like uh, Julia Roberts, so mm-hmm. they're, they're film stars, rock stars, athletes, these people are taking on roles, really. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you watch this Jenna Marble, she needs to take on a role because she's out of control in, in, in these videos. So I think YouTubers are looking at her saying, oh, she's being herself. She's authentic. And that probably says to them, that gives us permission to just be ourselves, too. I think that's ironic because of all the, the people on the top ten list, she, if anything, is essentially a comedian. I mean, she's a comic is what she is. So she's taking on the same role Amy Schumer takes on in the movies. And I don't know what the difference is between a YouTube star, let's say the top ten YouTube stars, and let's say the top ten celebrity chefs, or the top ten celebrated authors, or the top ten uh, you know, reality TV stars. All of these people, I think, have the potential to have more sway than Julia Roberts. I think it's a nonsense story is what I'm trying to tell I don't you. know. And listen, I think people think comedians are authentic. I think people think Jerry Seinfeld's Jerry Seinfeld. Richard Pryor mm-hmm. was Richard Pryor. I mean, I think when people see comedians... They say, yeah, that's who they are. And, and they might be right. I don't know. George Carlin, you know, he was kind of an angry, crazy bastard. So who knows? <laughs> you are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, is the ESPN bubble about to burst? Oh, boy. I found this to be a fascinating article. This is from, I should say, uh, foxsports.com, which, for the record, is hardly an impartial third party. Um, 
is ESPN a giant bubble about to burst? It's really more about what happens not just when ESPN bursts, but when the cable bundle bursts. Mm. Here's a, here's a line from the article. This is really interesting because of the depth of numbers they put in here. ESPN has lost 7.2 million subscribers in the past four years, over 3 million since last year. By the way, Tom, the way ESPN loses subscribers is um, is it is by people canceling their cable subscriptions okay. because ESPN is basic cable. Mm-hmm. So basically what they're saying is cable subscriptions are declining. That could have a seismic impact in sports media since... If the cable bundle is one large bubble, as some have been suggesting for years, the sports universe may be in for a cruel tumble. Why is that? Well, let's break it down. As many people know, every single channel on cable has a monthly cost that goes to the cable uh, operator that ultimately comes from you. ESPN's monthly cost per household is $6.61 for every single household they have. That is vastly more than any other Network. Uh, TNT is number two at $1.65. Disney Channel is just over a dollar. NFL Network just over a dollar. Fox News just over a dollar. And so on down the line. Nickelodeon, 73 cents a household. So hmm. when you take $6.61 and multiply it times 94.5 million households, you come up with $7.5 billion. That's billion with a B. It's a lot of money. Now, What has ESPN been doing with their $7.5 billion? Well, they've been buying up sports rights because the one thing you can count on for hit programming when you're a sports network is not people, it's games. Um, There is no Game of Thrones (laughs) on ESPN. There are only the real games of Thrones. The sports networks have, you know, the games themselves are the hits. So here's the thing. Statistically, before it can make a dollar, ESPN has to pay out roughly $6 billion a year to sports leagues. So here's what the article says, and this is so interesting. Right now, with 92 million subscribers, what we don't know is what would happen if cord cutting eventually drove that number down to, say, 60 million subscribers. Then ESPN would bring in under $5 billion and owe the sports league $6 billion. They call that being upside down, Tom. Yeah. Now, naturally, advertising, as the numbers go down, the advertising numbers also go down. So not only do they make less money from you and me, they make less money from advertisers, and everything begins to fall apart. Um, The reality is that um, the money that you pay for your uh, cable bundle, uh, an inordinate portion of it goes to ESPN, whether or not you watch ESPN. So literally, ESPN is funding itself, funding the sports industrial complex, by uh, money from people who don't consume its content. I love that. <laughs> this is why the cable bundle is so important. The cable bundle doesn't only support ESPN. The cable bundle allows a lot of relative also-ran networks, like, say, AMC, mm. produce content that they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to produce if they have to rely on, you know, over-the-top a la carte programming. So, goodbye, Mad Men. Goodbye, Walking Dead. This is in a world where there's no uh, cable bundle. You know, the bundle finances all of quality television. So this is really pretty scary for people. And oh, by the way, they say that ESPN has some, I think it's uh, the figures, 400 million in cuts they have to do over the next uh, year. And uh, if you want to know why, there's no longer Keith Olbermann. There's no longer Colin Coward. There's no longer Bill Simmons. Uh, Look no farther than... Uh, your cable bundle. What's your take, Tom? Uh, listen, 
first of all, that was a long, confusing article to me. Now, you're, you're a research guy and a numbers guy. And I read that article five times to try to find out what was going on. So, so to me, the article is almost a metaphor for what consumers of television are facing, right? In my mind, there's just too much confusing information. When you look at what mm -hmm. should I do with my, with my cable? Should I do this? Should I drop? Should I get this? Should I switch to this? And I think that's what mm -hmm. the industry players want. They want consumers to look at these various options, throw up their hands and say, screw it, I'll just keep what I have for now. And that's why I believe there won't be any bubble bursting anytime soon, but rather a, probably just a slow, leaky transition. But I think the author, Mark, has something backwards in the article. I th he wrote, if the cable bundle is one large bubble, then the sports universe may be in for a cruel tumble. I like that. It's kind of sounds like Muhammad <laughs> Ali could have wrote that. But see, I think the cable bundle is in for a cruel tumble if and when people choose to get their live sports fix a la carte. So when people say, I'm going to go with Sling TV and I'll throw in a sports bundle, that's when the cable business had better watch out. Because and you're the research guy, so help me understand this. So, you know, this number that ESPN is getting, which is $6.61 mm -hmm. per subscriber, whether they watch it or not, where did the $6.61 come from? That's the number ESPN and, and Disney were able to negotiate with the cable operators because, the... because a significant subfraction, the people who care, care a lot, right. even if they're a minority, and they're going to demand that ESPN be present on their cable right. system, and that's going to push up the value. So that's the big number. The big number is the cable companies caving in because yes. if there's one big drawback to cord cutting and going a la carte, with internet-based TV, it doesn't include live sports or live news, but that's not as big a deal. So that's, I mean, it's right. Your point that it could be, you know, a standalone. Uh, there's numbers in here on that as well. Standalone ESPN seeking to produce the same revenue, the same revenue, which remembers the revenue they need to pay for these rights, would cost at least $30 a month or twice what HBO costs and three times what Netflix costs. Now, if you add in the other sports networks in order to get the full fill of what you want, what you get now as part of your cable package, right. the cost for sport fans, sports fans would be over $100 a month for sports only. Now, no doubt there are people who would value that. But what about the rest of us who have no interest in that? There are a lot more people who don't. I think it's a serious problem, and it's why ESPN is tightening their belts right now. And it is going to cause some trouble in the world of sports because it all flows downhill. Um, the broadcast rights are a function of what ESPN bids. Um, so those numbers are going to suffer, which means what the players make is going to suffer, and, oh, and so on all the way down the line. The players might make a little less money. Look... <laughs> So ESPN is probably going to bundle their offering with other channels. I think they're doing it right now with Sling TV. Mm -hmm. And that's what this game is now going to turn into, right? It, for the cord cutters, it's going to be smaller bundles. I, I, I mean, how many companies, there are a handful of conglomerates, and, and they can do anything they want. I think between them, Disney, Turner, Viacom, 21st Century Fox and Comcast. I think they own every TV channel. So 
they're just going to figure out, okay, how do we bundle stuff and sell it as a package? Okay, yeah, $30 a month, not just for ESPN. We'll throw in these other six channels too. I think that's what we're going to see happen. Yep, we're going to see that. I think we're also going to see these uh, cable networks slim down. We're going to see a thinner ESPN. We're going to see the talent from ESPN. We're already seeing it with people like Simmons go to uh, networks that are already standalone, like HBO, right. which technically is is both standalone and part of the bundle. Um, that's We're going to see more of that, and we're also going to see the frenzy over the past few years that allowed uh, a variety of cable networks to create a lot of distinctive quality programming. That is going to start drying up, even as folks like Amazon and folks like Netflix try and you know, uh, 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 introduce some of their new content into the mix. Yep. You're going to see the AMCs of the world, the A&Es of the world. You're going to see less new original content from those guys. It's inevitable, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, Tom, it's time for Rants and Raves. you have anything good this week? Well, you're going to love this, Mark. An, Excellent. A listener of our show <laughs> emailed me and suggested that I take a deep breath this week and stop ranting for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and look for, I'm surprised I didn't get that note. Yeah, and look for something positive in, in the world of uh, business and, and all that. So, okay, point well taken. And I'll tell you, I'm glad I, I did look for the positive because I found a company that's walking the talk about enhancing the value of what they do as a business through real-world engagement, believe it or not. Involvement, creativity, learning, giving back, and not just with some passive sit-back-and-smile YouTube video, but with a real investment of time and money in a mutually beneficial and empowering way. So Staples, the office supply chain, they partnered with middle school students in Atlanta and in Brooklyn to teach these kids about product design, the process, and how to create marketable ideas. And the students hmm. learned how to go from problem to prototype. They were taught how to conceive, to research, how to present their ideas. And these ideas like more useful backpacks, folders, pencil holders. Those products are called Designed by Students are going to hit Staples store shelves this fall. Now, this might sound like an advertisement for Staples. I'm not advertising anything. What I'm saying is if you really believe that the people who buy your products are the important people, then get out there and work with these people. Discover with them how to change up your business and make it better for their benefit. And uh, I want to thank staples for breaking my cycle of spiraling down with my rants <laughs> <laughs> you know that is so fabulous because um back to stu you know it used to be that for these business uh, supply stores business was what drove them but back to school is such a huge huge aspect for those places now what a great way to ingratiate yourself with that particular uh, constituency and of course their parents i agree I love that. Thank you. All right, I have uh, two for you today. I have a rant and a rave. I'm going to start with the rant. I'm going to um, reference an article for you, and I want you to try and guess who wrote this okay. because it can be only one of two people. Oh, boy. And, and I think you're going to be able to guess. Here it is. It's from Ad Age. Is there a marketing lesson to be learned from Donald Trump? Neither brands nor politicians can be all things to all people. Do you have a guess yet? Is his first name right. Bob? Bob. No. Okay. Um... From, here's another line. It must be from Al. Nowhere. It must be Al. <laughs> I knew it was either Al, Al who? or Bob. Al Rees. <laughs> I knew you would guess it. You guessed it from the title. There you go. All right. From nowhere to a virtual tie for the first place. I knew you would do this. <laughs> How did Donald Trump do that? By focusing on a single issue. 
immigration. Oh, God. Now, this was written on July 15th, which wasn't that long ago. As we all know, uh, Mr. Trump has moved on to several other <laughs> single issues since then, but we'll ignore that. I would probably argue that maybe how he got to first place is being the most famous and provocative individual in a field of more than a dozen milquetoast alternatives, but that's just me. Um, it's interesting. This This <laughs> article goes on to say, uh, to criticize, here's what he says. He says, you might be thinking big successful brands stand for a lot of different things. Marketing experts even recommend this approach. Wrote David Aker in Building Strong Brands. The basic philosophy was that a brand is more than a single claim. In fact, it needs to have from six to 12 dimensions, dot, 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 dot. Um, here's what Al says. If you're not the leader, however, developing a strategy that includes six to 12 dimensions will guarantee you never will become the leader. BMW became the luxury vehicle leader in the American market by focusing on driving, and BMW lost its leadership by switching to joy. Oh, that's what happened? <laughs> oh, okay. I, didn't, I didn't realize you had to blame joy for BMW's difficulties. Well, you know, he's still under the impression that you can kind of program people's brains by by running ads over and over and over and over and over, yes. yeah. So and, you know, and then we and then we're like little robots. We drive out and we say <laughs> we want to we want to be joyful. Oh, BMW. Listen to this. He says the Donald Trump of the 1996 presidential election was Steve Forbes, who focused his campaign on the flat tax. Flat tax. Now, don't forget. First of all, Donald Trump you know, by most <laughs> measures, is unlikely to become president. Steve Forbes, last I checked, did not become president. Then he says the Steve Forbes of the 2012 presidential election was Herman Cain, his 999 plan. Herman Cain, not president, <laughs> right? Are you with me so well, far? Well, because, because there was a bigger one called Hope. <laughs> well, he does make that point. He doesn't say it was bigger, but listen to this. If history is any guide, Jeb Bush will become the 2016 Republican nominee and Hillary Clinton will become the Democratic one. Neither one will take a strong position on any single issue because they both already own strong positions. They are leaders. In other words, Tom, focus on a single thing to become a leader. But if you're already a leader, you don't need to focus on a single thing. And if you did focus on a single thing, you may not become a leader. I love that. I don't know what any of this means. Okay. That's my rant for this week. Okay. <laughs> My rave, this is precious. Now, you know um, that I'm a fan of movies, right? Horror movies. Especially horror <laughs> movies. Yes, Tom. So that leads me to do crazy things like search the internet for podcasts, which, um, which relish uh, the category of horror movies. And you know how sometimes you find something which is just so awful, it's great? Uh-oh. <laughs> I managed to do that uh, the other week. I found this podcast called The Golden hey Age of Horror Podcast, and I'm going to play for you. I'm going to move the mic a little. I'm going to play for you just 60 seconds. I want you to enjoy this. Okay. Hi, and welcome to the GoldenAgeHorror.com podcast. We're going to talk about Son of Frankenstein for the second time. Encore. It was so good the first. It was incredible. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty. Uh, I guess. I mean, it's not really. It's a. It's a memorable movie. Um, <laughs> Do we sound like this? In a sense. I guess I don't know. It's got a lot of uh, memorable and iconic bits in it. <laughs> See what happens when there's no barrier to entry. <laughs> All right, so let me regale you with, you know, the, 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 the glories of this particular 
podcast, even in this short 60 seconds. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear it, but it opened with tapping of the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> well, shouldn't we should do that, right? You got to make sure it's on, Tom. All right. That's there's no better way. Secondly, there's the echo. You know, one of the two voices had the echo effect, which they apologize for in the show notes. But listening to that for half an hour is just amazing. One guy has the world's worst mic, and the other is so far from the mic you could pretty much squeeze in an Olympic-sized swimming pool in the in that in that in that distance. You have long pros, long pregnant pauses. You know, so. <laughs> You have one guy, you can't tell this from the 60 seconds, uh, one guy's seen the movie, pick the, other guy, <laughs> the other guy basically has not. You have no sense of trajectory. It's just fabulous from start to finish. It's the kind of blessed, wonderful train wreck that was an Ed Wood movie. I love it. And speaking of horror Isn't it movies, great? speaking of horror movies, and, I, and this isn't an ad, didn't you love that What We Do in the Shadows? Was that one strange horror movie? <laughs> what We Do in the Shadows was great. Yeah, it was uh, one of the stars from uh, Flight of the Concords on HBO. What a strange little uh, movie In fact, a couple of them. I loved it. Yeah, great movie. All right, that's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Net News Check. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and your comments, especially Tom. He loves that oh, stuff. Use, using hashtag Media Unplugged, if there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>